0: You are listening to the science and soul of living well where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Ming-Voines, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. Before I introduce our very special guest for today, I just wanted to remind everyone about the new free four-part video series that I am offering focused on resilience building, which integrates a variety of tools from evidence-based psychology and complementary and alternative medicine. And so if you're interested in learning more, please feel free to check out the episode notes. I am so delighted to introduce you to Dr. Lori Brado. Dr. Brado is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Brado is also a registered psychologist and the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute. Dr. Brado conducts research on women's sexual health and difficulties develops and tests mindfulness-based and psychoeducational interventions for women with sexual desire and arousal complaints, and studies many aspects of sexual health, including culture and sexuality, hormones and sexual desire, cancer and sexuality, concerns about HPV and sexuality, asexuality, and more. She has also published over 200 articles and book chapters, has given more than 300 invited presentations, and is frequently contacted by the media as a guest expert on the topic of sexuality. Her book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, published by Greystone Books, is a scientifically informed translation of her research on mindfulness to improve women's sexuality. And she is currently working on another book, which we will be talking a bit about today. And personally, it really is such a joy and honor to welcome you here today, Dr. Brado, because as you know, I've been a huge admiring fan of yours for many years and have sourced quite a bit from your research and clinical work in my own work with clients. And your book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, is a huge contribution to our literature. And I love how you present the evidence base for a variety of tools and practices in a very digestible and accessible way. And all of your work is extremely trauma-informed and So I think offering some strategies that can also be accessed by people who've experienced trauma is a huge asset to our community as well. So I want to thank you for all of your work to date on all of these important topics and for making the time to join us for this conversation today.
1: Thank you, Melissa. What a what a um, gracious introduction. <laughs> I truly am honored to be here and speaking with you today. So thank you.
0: You're so welcome. Well, I thought it might be helpful to begin in talking a bit about your definition of mindfulness, since so much of your work centers around mindfulness and people have their own working definitions, so to speak, regarding mindfulness to just hear a bit about how, how you define mindfulness in your own life and work.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, that's a, I think a really important question to start off on because people are very curious. There is so much in the popular media around mindfulness, um, but varying definitions about what exactly we, we mean by that. So I have, um, adopted the definition that's Conventionally used in other mindfulness based fields and interventions, uh, which essentially boils mindfulness down to two things. In part, it is about guiding the attention, so attention training, concentration training onto a particular target. But the second part, and I would argue with regards to sexuality, perhaps the more important part, is how we do that. And how we do that is compassionately, with kindness. And non judgmentally. So it boils down to paying attention in a kind and compassionate way. And when we do that, it's not about paying attention and then fixating your attention on a particular target and it just stays there. Rather, we recognize and accept that the attention is like a puppy dog it goes here, it goes there. And we often have to guide the attention back. And when we do that, we do so with, you know, kindness to ourselves. So that's, um, I think, the definition uh, that my work has has really followed. And when we apply that to sexuality, it actually works really well, because sex- in the domain of sexuality and, and sexual difficulties, it's often laden with judgments self-judgments about not being good enough or not having sex in a certain way or to a, you know, certain expected norm. And I use norm in air quotes and your listeners can't see my air quotes, but there's lots of air quotes around that. So, yeah. So again, the, the compassion part of mindfulness is really, really important when we talk about it in sexuality. I really appreciate you sharing the
0: specifics of, of that definition. And I think it also highlights in an accessible way what we're talking about when we're talking about the practice of mindfulness. It demystifies it a bit in terms of breaking it down into what this construct really means. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about What initially drew you towards exploring mindfulness as a tool in enhancing sexual health and well-being? Mm -hmm. I know you talk a little bit about this book, this in your book, but for folks who Mm -hmm. aren't yet familiar with your book, for you to share a bit about how you how you found mindfulness in terms of these applications.
1: Um, So I I really did find mindfulness, or maybe it found me. I'm not sure which direction, but (laughs) either way, I'm grateful we found each other. Um, uh, I had been doing sexuality research um, as a graduate student and as as a resident in clinical psychology, um, and I uh, was doing research with cancer survivors and was particularly interested in Um, The experience of, of a group of gynecologic cancer survivors that I was working with, this is in 2002 now at the University of Washington, and what they described to me was a profound disconnect from their sexuality, not just a disconnect from the physical feelings of pleasure when they or a partner touched their body, but um, an emotional disconnect, no longer understanding, no longer feeling their own sexuality and really feeling a sense of grief and loss over that, in addition to their uh, effects of, of uh, having cancer and, and its treatments. Now, in parallel, as I was doing research with gynecologic cancer survivors, I was introduced to mindfulness um, through a, a, a completely independent stream as when I was a resident, I had the opportunity to do some training in dialectical behavior therapy, which is a um, evidence-based well-supported treatment for um, parasuicidal behaviors, um, extremes and emotions where a person really feels that within a, within one day, their emotions might go from really intense high to really extreme lows And what I had learned as I was learning dialectical behavior therapy is that tuning in to those emotions, almost like getting on a surfboard and learning how to ride the ups and downs was a really effective way of coping, but also of reconnecting with Mm -hmm. oneself and one's emotion. And I, and I remember, I almost remember it to the day when it was this notion of reconnecting with what was within in my work with uh, dialectical behavior therapy and and asking myself, could this be relevant to the stories I'm hearing with the gynecologic cancer survivors that I'm working with? Um, And so I approached my own supervisor at the time and said, what do you think? You know, could mindfulness be a tool? Could it be useful? And um, my supervisor, I was so lucky to work with Dr. Julia Hyman, really a, you know, a giant, a pioneer in the field of of studying sexual response um, in individuals. And she said, well, let's give it a try. And so uh, thankfully the survivors I was working with were so gracious that they allowed me to, to learn this with them. So we were learning this at the same time I was taking the tools I was learning from DBT into the research with the survivors. They were providing feedback for me. And at the same time, we were both going home, practicing mindfulness, adopting, (laughs) adopting this in our, in our personal lives as well. And that was really, that laid the foundation then for uh, the first research study that we did, which once we had the components of, of a a bit of a treatment plan, I then went on and recruited a different group of cancer survivors and actually tested this. So the earliest um, version of this was three months of mindfulness, we would do this together in session, and then they would uh, practice it at home on a daily basis. And uh, the the initial findings were so striking. I mean, not only were they reporting that they could feel sexual response um, for the first time in months and months and months, but this actually translated when we brought them into uh, our sexual psychophysiology testing room, which um, for the listeners who don't know what that is, essentially, we bring them into a private room, they insert a sterile vaginal probe, they then view some um, female friendly erotica, their body responds, and then we're able to measure what does the body do in response to these sexual triggers. And we found after the mindfulness that we saw this huge boost in their body's response to this. So there were enough promising findings that that then paved the way for a number of much larger studies after that. So um, I think the the important thing for me is that because I was new to mindfulness, it was really importantly that I also personally immerse myself. So I went to courses, I took webinars, I um, got a teacher, I found a group where I could learn mindfulness. And importantly, I began to practice this in my daily life as well.
0: I think that is so helpful to to hear because I think so often when we are met with certain tools that could be helpful in our lives, we can feel a bit of shame or self-blame about needing these certain tools, so to speak. But as you articulated, these are tools that we can all benefit from for various reasons, and they really are so such powerful life practices. And while you were talking, it was interesting for me to hear a bit about both the astounding effects that that you noticed after a short period, relatively short period of time, of course, practicing something every day for three months is an effort that takes commitment and to see such profound effects after a relatively short period of time following uh, many months of having sexual difficulties, I think is very inspiring and hope instilling to really acknowledge that when we are met with the right kinds of tools and strategies, we can shift Mm -hmm. some of these um, domains of our lives. So I think that's really powerful to hear about.
1: Yeah and uh, you know I think this is where the I, I, it always makes me smile when I think of 3000 plus years of buddhist meditation um and no one ever asked for the empirical proof right. that this was helpful in their lives they just lived it and they experienced those benefits um and uh of course we we do live in an age where scientific evidence is really important mm-hmm. it also is really important for for the public and for consumers as they're making their own decisions about where they may want to invest their time so um to be able to have the data now across a large number of different studies and studies that are not just by my own group, at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, but but by multiple other groups around the world with different populations of different people, um, but the story is is a converging one, and it's very clear. And that is and that is that mindfulness. Um, it, I I would I would go so far as to say mindfulness is the most important ingredient for satisfying. embodied sexuality. Mm -hmm. I I, I would put my name to that. Um, And and now, of course, we have the data that that can show that as well. Mm -hmm.
0: You're reminding me of one of my favorite quotes from your book, which is towards the end, which builds on this theme that we're talking about, about the essential nature of mindfulness to embodied and satisfying sexual lives. And you write let me see here. Based on my own observations of mindfulness, I would argue that satisfying sex is quite simply not possible without mindfulness. When the women in our groups recall an experience of magnificent sex, the details of the activities and settings vary significantly. However, their stories share one critical ingredient in common. The person was fully present, fully alive, fully connected, fully there. Acrobatic Mm -hmm. or willful stamina are not what makes sex truly Magnificent, In my opinion, it is mindfulness to be fully present with each sensation without judgment or without commentary is what I think has been missing from sex from the countless women who are dissatisfied with sex. It cannot be packaged up in a pink little pill it cannot be injected or placed on the arm in patch form it is simple but not easy. It requires a lifetime commitment to practice mindfulness is transformational. I invite you to begin to experience sex in a way you never have before. It is all within reach, simply by paying attention, right now, right where you are. Yes, that's it. Wow, <laughs> I, love Ooh, it. I love it. I love it. I know I had goosebumps while I was reading that. <laughs> so, Dr. Brado, something else you you mentioned when you were explaining your journey to to mindfulness, this mutual finding of each other, was the importance of both emotional connectedness as well as physical connectedness Mm -hmm. and sexual well-being and vitality being a holistic process, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And I wonder if it might be helpful for people to hear a little bit more from you about the multitude of influences that contribute to sexual desire and sexual Mm -hmm. arousal, because I think one of the really helpful strategy, so to speak, and being more embodied in our sex lives is understanding our own sexual response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is something that many of us due to conditioning, due to how we were raised, certain societal Mm -hmm. messaging just are not taught about Mm -hmm. how our bodies work. And so we'd love for you to share whatever you think is relevant in that regard.
1: Um, yeah, wow. That's a big question, Melissa, and and, rea- and really uh, an important one because um, I mean, the first thing that comes to my to my um, attention when you say that is an acknowledgement that there are a lot of societal myths that um, I think we take on un- unconsciously. We, we're not aware that we're taking on these myths. If we were aware, mm-hmm. we'd reject them as myths and and uh, endeavor to find accurate information. But there are a lot of myths such as, you know sex should be automatic. Our bodies should respond with mm. appropriate stimulation. Um, we should be responsive regardless of the time of day or the context or what else is on our mind. Desire is spontaneous. Mm -hmm. Um, If you love a partner, you should feel desire for that Mm. person. And and I I mean, I could really we could spend the entire conversation (laughs) just going over this uh, this list of myths and many many more. But they they really are myths. So I think first and foremost, we want to acknowledge um, that uh, there are societal messages that we take on, and it becomes really important to acknowledge what are my own beliefs about sexuality and mindfulness actually can be really important in that process because, you know, mindfulness is, is about tuning in. And sometimes when we tune in, we do bring awareness, not just to the body, but to mental events. Like what are the beliefs and thoughts that I am having with regards to sexuality? Um, so that sort of step one is let's take stock. What are, what are my own, um, kind of my framework for understanding sexuality um so with regards to the body's response now we know the body is important absolutely the the body um there there's a fair bit of research which uh, suggests that our bodies are programmed in a way to have, kind of a, um, a responsivity to triggers. And that differs, differs across all of us. There might be some individuals listening who are very, very responsive to erotica. And there are others who are programmed to be less responsive to visual erotica, and maybe they respond more to touch, or maybe they respond more to fantasy or to other things. So that's where the body's involvement is, um, but it doesn't work in isolation. And so with our body's kind of predetermined, pre-programmed responsivity, it does require that there are stimuli or triggers in our environment to then respond to. So a good parallel is when we think about happiness. And all of us, again, might be uh, pre-programmed in a certain way to be Um, more happy or less happy or more responsive to happy things happening or less responsive, but then it really depends on what are those things that elicit happiness in us, right? Someone says something nice, we see something that brings us joy, maybe we have a memory or something. And so that is what we mean by uh, a trigger or a stimulus. And these two things operate together in sexuality as well. Our predispositions for response as well as what is that trigger that then uh, pulls out or elicits a sexual response for us. That becomes really important because, first of all, um, Melissa, you mentioned that for a variety of reasons, we may not have learned what those triggers are for us. Uh, We may never have had an opportunity to explore what are the things that turn me on, or we may have received very proactive messages, messages against that, right, to touch Mm -hmm. one's body is wrong, or to view something that is erotic is dangerous or damaging or inappropriate, or again, the list goes on. So um, as, uh, you know, as mature sexual beings, regardless of our age, um, it really behooves us in a way to, to know what are those things that excite us? And what are the things that don't excite us? That run the full range of touches, sounds, tastes, visual triggers, um, and appreciate that those things might evolve over the course of our life as our own physiology changes, as our own hormones change. Um, And also, if you are in a long term relationship, recognizing that those responses within a long term relationship will change as well. So the basic ingredient is, yes, having a, a kind of a predisposition to a response, then having effective triggers. And then here's where mindfulness comes in, because the brain is what takes those two ingredients and then translates that into sexual response and sexual response being both arousal Right, this sense of physical awakening in the body, but also in the mind, and then desire. Um, And maybe the last thing I'll say about that, although you may want to elaborate further, (laughs) is that um, for a lot of people, desire happens after arousal. So it is very normal, very common for a person um, to first become sexually aroused. And that then paves the way to the wanting, to the craving, to the desire. So arousal, giving uh, giving way to desire rather than the other way around.
0: I really appreciate you mentioning that because I think a lot of people can get caught in a bit of self-blame or shame when they don't notice desire coming before arousal, that there's something wrong with them or their body isn't functioning properly. And then of course, when when those kinds of thought processes are circulating in our minds, that often is not an aphrodisiac, that often does not help promote arousal and desire. So to understand that this is normal, that mm-hmm. many of us don't start from a place of desire, that that mm-hmm. is something that can come at another point in the process that it isn't necessarily this linear strict path. And Mm then if we diverge from that, there's nothing wrong with us. As you said, there's so much individual variation and how Mm -hmm. we become turned on in, in how we respond sexually and what excites us sexually.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and in fact, I, I would maybe even go a step further and say Um, that that model of desire suggests that we actually are active agents in our own desire. We're not sort of passive uh, bystanders waiting for desire to land on us, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. thus, when we don't feel spontaneous desire, um, it leads to a lot of distress and grief. You know, what happened to my desire? Where did my desire go? It used to be here. It's no longer here. Rather, this model that we're talking about, which, by the way, is really strongly supported by the scientific evidence, Um, uh, positions us such that we are active agents in exploring what are those triggers for my desire? Mm -hmm. How can I use mindfulness and my attention training in a non-judgmental way to really tune in and be present so that the brain can then transfer this into arousal? Mm -hmm. So it's it's a much more empowering kind of a model. Yes, I love that.
0: And I'm curious to know if you have tips or suggestions for people who are maybe listening, nodding, saying yes. That it that is me. I identify with that. I don't really know what my triggers are. I, I don't really have a strong sense of of what turns me on. Or maybe I have some sense, but it feels like a very narrow sense of how people can go about this process of exploring in a mindful, non-judgmental, non-judgmental, compassionate way, Mm -hmm. what their personal triggers are for, for arousal and desire.
1: Yeah. Um, really good question again, because it takes us back to the fact that the, the big surveys, uh, indicate that most people have, have not done that, um, that they that they for a variety of reasons have not really explored what turns them on, what sexually excites them. So I think if if we can go into this with a lot of permission giving, and we want to set aside the beliefs that I'm too old for this, mm. or I've been in a relationship too long, my partner should just know, um, or it's inappropriate. Rather, if I think sometimes I borrow the lens of health. Mm -hmm. And if we can view this as really, truly health promoting, like this is a way for me to really nurture and take care of my broader health. And it's actually not that far of a stretch because other data tell us that sexual health is a big part of general health and general quality of life. In fact, so much so that the World Health Organization has declared um, sexual health as a fundamental part of quality of life and general health. So it's not that far of a stretch to say, when we invest this time in learning about and exploring our own sexuality, we're actually contributing to our own general health and well-being. Um, so I'll just pause because I really want your listeners to take that on. Yes, and and, uh, and and believe that. So that that I think is is step number one, um, and also acknowledging that yeah, it might be challenging. This might be the very first time that you've used a handheld mirror to examine your own body in a non-judgmental way. Um, This might be the first time that you use your own hands to touch your body in an exploratory way. Um, And and all of that is fine. It doesn't have to be a one and done sort of an exercise. Rather, it can be sort of thing that we make a commitment to doing over the course of a number of months, maybe once a week over the next few months. uh, 10 minutes, we start with 10 minutes, a bit of a toe in the water, right? Mm-hmm. We dip the toe in, get a sense of, oh, what's this like? And then we revisit it next week and add on a, a couple of more minutes. Um, and I think setting the intention going into this, which is, I'm not setting out on this journey of self-exploration to get anything in particular. We're not Searching for orgasm. We're not searching for the holy grail. Rather, it is the journey of truly getting to know my body and my responsivity. And that includes with eyes open, but also with eyes closed, mm. so that we can really tune into the sensations in our body. So lots and lots of permission giving, lots of framing this as a really important and healthy thing. And, and then finally, I can um maybe assure the listeners because we've now done this with hundreds and hundreds of of women and others who've come through our group, that they are so grateful after uh, the opportunity of doing this. They say, oh my gosh, I wish I had done this, you know, decades ago, Um, but I'm so (laughs) grateful to have had this opportunity to do this. And thank you for for nudging me in that direction. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing
0: those anecdotes as well, because I do think it can feel intimidating to embark upon some of these practices, like you've said, for all sorts of reasons, all the ways in which we've consciously and unconsciously have internalized some of these messages. And also, as you said, for many people who have had trauma, sexual trauma, have had medical conditions like cancer that has affected our relationships to our bodies, or even unpleasant sexual experiences that we don't necessarily deem traumatic per se, but have created certain associations around sex or a certain emotional charge around sex that that can just bring up a lot of emotion when we are engaging in some of these explorations. And I'm wondering if you have any wisdom to share for people who are taking some of these steps, you did mention taking it slowly
1: and Mm -hmm. going at your
0: own pace. Um, And I'm wondering if there are any other tidbits or or pearls Mm -hmm. of wisdom you might share for people who are are finding a lot of emotional charge and activation coming up around some of this exploration.
1: Um, Yeah. So it's making me think of two things. The first one is memory and, you know, memories are so powerful and, um, you know, smell, for example, because smells are stored in the oldest part of the brain, the hindbrain, the olfactory cortex. It is amazing when people can, you know, smell something that they haven't smelled in decades. And as soon as they smell it, it takes them back Mm
0: -hmm. to that
1: episode. Um, and, uh, memories of past sexual encounters, particularly negative sexual encounters almost work in the same way that they can be brought up in such a vivid way. And often while a person is engaging in sexual activity, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a cruel joke that our memories play on us, that we, that we, we have these vivid memories become recalled in the moment of sexual activity. There's some parallel, um, Neurophysiological uh, research that suggests maybe arousal is the trigger, maybe mm. arousal that happened at that time of that bad bad memory, and then arousal that's happening in the future is the mechanism by which we recall these negative past events. Um, but at the same time, a memory is just a memory, and when we when we use the language of beginner's mind, which is a lovely phrase that John Kabat-Zinn. And mindfulness developed, which is is this idea that every time we practice mindfulness, yes, we have our past experiences, we have our past memories, but it's as if we're working with a brand new blank canvas every time because this day, this time, and this particular practice is not the same as the last time, the last practice, mm. the last encounter. Um, and so, when we go into uh, sexuality in that way. Um, And and I'll admit, it is challenging because those past memories, especially if it's with the same partner, they can be so vivid. Um, But mindfulness helps us go into a new encounter with a bit of that sense of a beginner's mind. It Mm -hmm. might be different. And if I can really just use my attention and my compassion to stay present with whatever comes up maybe I'll be open to experiencing things in a in a slightly different way. So borrowing that kind of language of beginner's mind, and acknowledging that just because we have a memory about something, a a memory does not predict future events. Mm. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's a statement of something that happened in the past, but it's no guarantee of what happens Mm -hmm. in the future. So the other thing I wanted to say about this um, relates to an actual scientific study, a research study that we had done with survivors of of past sexual assault who now uh, found themselves in healthy, consensual, loving relationships. They wanted to have sex. They adored their partners. Um, and when they attempted to engage in sexual activity, the arousal would trigger dissociation for them, mm. their, their minds would go back to those past sexual encounters. And you can imagine your listeners can imagine just how upsetting and distressing that is because of course, they're wanting to have sex ha- they have consent in a way that maybe they, they didn't in, in the past. Um, And so within this study, we had half of the women take part in a mindfulness um, intervention where we uh, really practiced staying with the arousal at the very earliest signs of arousal Mm. uh, and progressively escalating the arousal more and more. So they would start off on their own with arousal and then gradually bring this into arousal with a partner. Um, And the the net result at the end of the study, the end of the day, was that mindfulness allowed them to remain present, to experience arousal, um, and to uh, not dissociate, not kind of be brought brought back to those negative uh, traumatic experiences of their past. It was very gradual and progressive, but I think the bottom line was teaching them and practicing, tuning in in a safe, consensual way was, was really the key that, that arousal did not have to be scary for them. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's almost like reconditioning your response, so to speak, or building new associations Mm -hmm. from, with the same kind of response. So the same cues that signify arousal are now associated with some present focused memories, as opposed to solely the more historical examples and encounters.
1: Yeah. And, and because within, I mean, mindful sex really is about tuning into the, the, the sensations in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so when we do that, we, we don't notice, don't pay attention to let fade into the background, perhaps um, thoughts that are, Mm -hmm. that might be happening at the same time. And uh, so when we kind of expand that container of our awareness To make room for, yes, there might be thoughts and there might be memories, but there can also be this very grounding experience of noticing the vibrations of sex, Mm. the sounds of it, the the temperature of it, the intensity of it, Um, then that uh, can become the foreground of the experience while memories and other thoughts can fade into the background and eventually become eliminated altogether. Mm -hmm.
0: And as you said earlier, it's such an empowering approach to be able to connect with a sense of agency, to feel more able to be with the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. of your experience in terms of emotions and thoughts and physical sensations. But as you said, in a way that the the historical can more fade to the background and the present can stay more in the foreground. But I think that message of empowerment is really
1: important. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. (laughs) Agree with everything you just said.
0: (laughs) Well, Dr. Prado, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your, your newest book and the focus of it. And I, I already have some, some thoughts and questions, but want to start there with you just sharing Mm -hmm. a bit about it and what prompted it.
1: Yeah, so better sex through mindfulness was really um, a translation of the science, and you know, a- as a researcher myself, um, I'm well aware of the fact that no one reads my journal articles, right? They sort of stay buried in a journal, not accessible. And actually, it's a real it's a it's a it's a real tragedy, I think, of yes. science in general, that all of this work goes I know. into doing research and then it stays buried. And I often joke that, you know, my students read it and that's about it. Um, so so to be able to use a book as a way of um, distilling and synthesizing and then translating the scientific findings from journal articles in a very accessible way, um, for me as a, as a scientist, there was a lot of appeal to that. And I didn't see myself as a, as a book writer at all. Um, but Uh, to be able to ensure that the science falls into the hands of those who might benefit from it is really really um, meaningful for me so that was the the purpose of and really the the contents of better sex through mindfulness it's a translation Mm -hmm. of, of the research now one of the um one of the the pieces of feedback though i had from better sex through mindfulness is that while it provided a really good foundation it 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 could have gone further in really introducing the actual exercises that we do in our groups and in the individual work so the workbook is a direct follow up to better sex through mindfulness um, and is going to have an accompanying audio guide so mm. the, the actual exercises are all written out in the text of the workbook and then there will be audio guides that listeners can listen to and and follow along with so they sort of had to have a choice of either listening to or reading the meditation guides so it's it's really intended to be the companion manual if you will mm. for anyone to to work through I think the other thing is that in the past three years since Better Sex Through Mindfulness was was published, we have a lot more data. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot more data, not just with women, but with men, with non-binary people, with trans people, people with with diverse uh, gender expressions mm-hmm. and diverse relationship configurations. And so I've really tried to um, expand, um, expand the material to make it much more accessible to really to everyone, not just mm-hmm. to, to women.
0: I I love it. I'm so excited (laughs) for your book to be released. And I would love, I I imagine this could be hard, but I would love for you to share one or two, if you can, of your favorite practices or exercises from the book with with our audience, just so they get a sense of what kinds of practices might be or will be
1: included in it. Yeah. Well, we have one exercise that I call sexual sensations awareness. And, um, for any listeners who have done a body scan, you know, essentially where you're tuning into different parts of the body, it's like a supercharged body scan, because, Mm -hmm. um, what I ask the listener to do is to first engage with some kind of sexual tool or sexual aid. So maybe it's a few minutes of using a vibrator to elicit arousal in the mm-hmm. body, or maybe it's a few minutes of, of engaging in a sexual fantasy where one elicits a really vivid sexual scene that turns them on and is, and is exciting. Um, maybe they read some erotic literature. And and again, the both the mind and the body uh, become... Become responsive, um, and I suggest that the person do this for about ten minutes or so, and then set it aside. And then we engage in a sexual sensations awareness exercise. And so the guide um, walks the person through the body in the same way of a body scan, but uh, we really tune into the the erogenous parts of the body. So paying particular attention to the parts of the body that may have really responded to what they just read or used or engaged with with the sexual tool. Often what happens with um, arousal in in sexual encounters, um, more so with people who really struggle with sexuality, low desire, low arousal, is their bodies might be engaging in sexual activity and their minds really are not. Their Mm -hmm. minds are elsewhere, either engaged in benign non-erotic thoughts like, did I turn off the stove? Are the kids going to walk in prepping for the business meeting tomorrow? Or they might be engaged in quite negative judgmental thoughts. Will I respond? Will a partner notice if I don't reach orgasm? Should I fake this? Um, this hurts, but I don't want to tell my partner that this hurts, mm-hmm. etc. Lots and I mean just a barrage of, of um negative judgmental thoughts that really take the mind away from the erotic stimuli that are happening. So the sexual sensations awareness exercise is about how do we pair again, the, the prompted physical arousal in the body with now our uh, non-judgmental attention training. Mm. And because we do this first on our own without a partner, then we can sort of, Get a sense of what does this actually look like if I were to do to now bring this or borrow this now into uh, a sexual encounter with a with a partner as well. So that's probably my favorite exercise, and one of the things that um, I especially love is we've evaluated in a research context just that one exercise on its own, though mm. so stripped away from the full eight week uh, program. Does that one practice on its own translate into improved sexual arousal? and guess what it does <laughs> it does i love it uh, we, we published that study you'll have to go through the you know the cobwebs of the scientific literature to find the paper um, or i can just share it with you but yes we did find that just that one practice on its own results in um more alignment of the physical arousal response and the mental arousal response at the same time in the here and now mm-hmm.
0: and at, this is reminding me of a, a a track or a turn that we were taking earlier, where for so many of us, there is that misalignment or that disconnect between the mental and the physical, whether it's some kind of medical condition or medical procedure that has reduced physical sensation, whether, whether there's some kind of traumatic or unpleasant sexual experience that has led us to dissociate or cut off ourselves from the attunement of our physical sensations for very understandable reasons. But and and as you said, also societal messaging, et cetera, are just so many reasons that we can be disembodied, where we can separate out or have this disconnect between mind and body when mm-hmm. in, in my mind they're they're one and the same. It's even right. just interesting that we have this expression mind body. Right. But but essentially that that through this exercise, we're really bridging that gap. We're really promoting that alignment in a way that is safe. In a way mm-hmm. that is compassionate, in a way that can be very self-guided and personalized mm-hmm. to meet one's own, own one's own needs. So it also mm-hmm. seems very customizable.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know the brain really is the biggest sex organ, and the 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 notion that um, mind and body are separate, this sort of Cartesian dualism. Mm-hmm phenomenon um is uh isn't is misinformed when it comes right. to sexuality it really is mind and body in unison um mm-hmm. acting in concert with one another influ- mutually influencing one another um and it is possible that uh sometimes you know the, the mind can can be elsewhere while the body is responding mm-hmm. and so in order to align those i mean mindfulness really is the optimal tool for doing that when i think about some of the other um, approaches that have been tested for sexual concerns, like medications and topical creams and that sort of thing. They, um, yes, they might kind of prime the body in a certain way, but they, they don't, uh, they don't make us enjoy our sexuality. They don't uh allow us to really tune in that kind of engaging the important mechanism of our brain in this. So in that, in that way, they're they're um quite unidimensional. So mindfulness again, at the end of the day, really is it's a mind-body approach. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I I know that you're more of the expert in this area than I am, but I think also thinking about some of the cognitive behavioral approaches that have a lot of merit and have been studied, which for people who are less familiar involve lot of curiosity about certain beliefs and thoughts, challenging those beliefs and thoughts. And of course, as we've said several times so far, there are certain messages and beliefs about sex that we can internalize, and there is a lot of value in challenging those. And yet for many people, that alone isn't sufficient to find more fulfilling
1: sexual lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, my, my, I mean mindfulness really is the answer. <laughs> it truly really is. It's uh, you know, and, and as I say and as others have said, it's so simple, it's not easy mm-hmm. um because uh acknowledging and and paying attention to negative self-judgment and years, if not decades of negative beliefs or particular beliefs around sexuality. Um, It's not necessarily a feel good kind of an exercise, but having said that there's a lot more that we stand to gain from tuning in rather than tuning out.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: I do think
0: sometimes we underestimate our ability to tune in. Yeah. And to tune into even what is unpleasant. And, yeah. and like you said, it's so important to plug into all of it because if yeah. something is unpleasant, noticing that helps us then articulate, hey, I don't like that. Can we try yeah. this instead? Like there's so much value to tuning into all of it. Mm-hmm. And and I do think we, we do sometimes fragilize ourselves or underestimate mm-hmm. our ability to not only develop these skill sets, mm-hmm. but also to be with the, the Mm -hmm. unpleasant, whether it's something that's happening within us and whether it's having an uncomfortable conversation about sex Mm -hmm. and our sexual needs and preferences.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You asked me about, you know, my, my two favorite exercises and I was just going to talk about one, but (laughs) since you mentioned this, I will, I will mention my other, um, Favorite and and I say that carefully because I don't want to have favorites. I know. My favorite. it, it probably, um, I probably.
0: I maybe could have phrased it in a less judgmental <laughs> way. <laughs> that's the okay. Of our conversation. Uh, but,
1: <laughs> oh no, that's fine. But but it really is um, the mindfulness of difficulty practice um, mm-hmm. that we do, and it's where you know we invite um, our our participants to either recall a negative conversation or or a source of conflict in their life. And then use that as the focus of their mindfulness practice for 20, 30, 40 Mm. minutes while tuning into uh, the sensations in their body that arise as they're tuning into this difficulty. And it's amazing, you know, when we can create this really safe place to roll up our sleeves Mm. and uh, acknowledge these difficulties, how much better equipped and empowered we feel to then approach those difficulties in our real life, because guess what? They are there, they're Mm -hmm. everywhere, those difficulties Mm -hmm. in our life. So um, yeah, mindfulness can be a, a, and, and in particular with sexuality, where there might be pain, with sex, where there, there might be other issues that are um, creating negative sensations, physical and emotional sensations. So that's, I think a really important practice as well is, you know, what, what happens when we confront the unpleasant Mm -hmm. and the tensions and the difficult memories, and can we bring that same spirit of compassion to the things that we dislike or that are unpleasant as we do to the pleasant things is this phenomenon of equanimity, right? Mm-hmm. Bringing that same spirit of compassion and openness to everything that arises.
0: Mm-hmm. And there being such an opportunity to practice that in so many different life domains. And, yeah. and as we're saying, the more that we practice in one domain, the more it can generalize to another. So the mm-hmm. same ability to be with discomfort that can help me in sex can help Mm -hmm. me when I'm in the midst of a different difficult parenting moment with my child or receiving difficult feedback from a client or whatever the situation is that ability to, to tune in and be with is, is such a powerful life practice. Sure is. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Brado, I know that we're nearing the end of our time and I want to give you the opportunity to to share anything else that we haven't gotten to that you feel is important to lift up or any closing thoughts or remarks that that you might want to share.
1: Yeah, thanks, Melissa. You know, I think um, mindfulness, it, it is very accessible. People often ask, how do I learn this? Do I have to attend a group? Um, I think it's really a matter of personal preference. Whenever mm-hmm. you're starting something new, um, I know that some people really, uh, really enjoy the apps that are available. There's a variety of different apps that, diver, d- that deliver mindfulness um, in a, in a through a guided audio recording uh, with different lengths of time. There are some that can be customized for mindfulness to help you fall asleep. Um, wouldn't recommend that one for sex. If you want to fall asleep? <laughs> sex, not fall asleep. But for some people, um, mindfulness can be a really, really helpful tool for falling asleep. So that's often what I recommend is, is, uh, one of the apps. There's lots of free uh, guides on, on YouTube and online as, as well. Um, and then the other thing I'll maybe just mention, I know that you'll link to this, um, afterwards is, um, just our research website, where Mm -hmm. we also use that as a, as a vehicle for disseminating, good evidence-based information about sexual health to the public. Um, and so would encourage the listeners to, to follow us on Twitter uh, or Instagram or Facebook for mm-hmm. depends on what their preferences.
0: And I imagine you'll be releasing information about your new book on those channels once it's ready. I sure will. Yes. Okay. Yes. So if, if mm-hmm. folks are interested. Well, Dr. Brado, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you today. This is such an important and powerful conversation. And as I said earlier, I just so appreciate the empowering and heartfelt way in which you approach your work and the dissemination of this work and these practices really are transformational and have been transformational in in my own life and so i just love being a part of forces in the world that are spreading this this ancient wisdom and so i'm so honored to have had this opportunity so thank you
1: thank you thank you so much melissa really enjoyed this
0: conversation
1: same thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.